Praise God for His grace and His mercy. And there is nothing that transforms like the saving grace of God. As we look at the life of Saul, we'll see his incredible transformation as God reaches into his life with grace. In Acts chapter 9, we read the account already of this incredible story of God's saving grace. But one thing I want to highlight as we prepare to dig into this text is the number of times that the name of Jesus comes up. Not just the word Jesus, but also His title as Lord, and even the phrase, my name. In fact, in these 19 verses, one of those three things, Jesus, Lord, or my name, comes up 14 times in 19 verses. That's almost one time for a verse. And so one of the highlights of this text is that this is the work of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord of the church, Lord of His people, Lord of all, as He reaches into the life of Saul and converts him for God's glory. And so we see the dramatic power of the Lord Jesus Christ evidencing this saving grace. The focus of the text is on the Lord Jesus, and so we'll try to maintain that focus as we go. It's the Lord Jesus who transforms lives with His glorious gospel. He does it. It's not some good in us or uh, some strength that we have that works change in us. No, it's the work of God, the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. He does it. And so as we walk through this text, we're going to see how he unfolds his grace in Saul's life. But as we come to each point, I'm also going to seek to make application and think through what this means for our lives. As we see Jesus doing this in Saul's life, what does that mean for us then? How then should we live as a result? And so I'll try to highlight some of those things by way of application as we work through this text that exalts the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Number one, we're going to see the power of Jesus Christ in that the Lord Jesus steps into our dark lives with His glorious light. The Lord Jesus steps into our dark lives with His glorious light. This story, this true account of Saul's conversion, begins with a reminder that Saul hasn't changed. Verse 1, Luke tells us that Saul is still breathing threats and murder against the church. And this takes our minds back to chapter 8, which we studied just a few weeks ago, when in verse 1 we read that Saul was consenting to his death, Stephen's death. At the same time, great persecution arose against the church, which is at Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Then he skipped down to verse 3, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. So this is Saul's mode of operation. This is what he's doing. He's persecuting the church, busting into homes and carrying people off to prison. And word has spread. And even now in chapter 9, Saul continues breathing threats and murder. 
That term breathing sometimes is a, like a metaphor for speaking, right? So it's like what he's saying, threats and murder against God's people, and it reveals what's in his heart. The reason he's arresting is not so that justice can be done, but Saul wants these people to be killed. He's hoping for the death penalty for those that he is arresting. So he's threatening and seeking their demise as he arrests both men and women, disciples of the Lord. In fact, verse 2 makes it clear that he's gone so far as to try now to extend his reach beyond Jerusalem. So he goes to the high priest there in Jerusalem and wants letters kind of uh, authorizing, we could call it extradition, right? That he could go up to Damascus. That's 135 miles north. So he wants to go all the way up to Damascus, begin arresting believers there, bringing them back to Jerusalem so they can be tried and even put to death. This is Saul's desire. This is his heart. This is who he is in opposition to God. Now, as a side note, it's interesting. Even Saul knows that the church has spread to Damascus, 135 miles north, and there are believers gathered there. Now, as we read back in chapter 8, because of this persecution, remember, uh, many of them were scattered. And so I think likely what happened is that the believers, or excuse me, the, the Jews who had come to Jerusalem for Pentecost and trusted in Christ and stayed in that area for a time were then maybe scattered back to their home. A group of them to Damascus and now have started a church there. Just cool to see how by God's power, even in the midst of persecution, the church is spreading and growing. Saul, in his hatred, wants to put down the way. It's an interesting term for the believers in that time, the way. We don't know exactly why it comes up, but you could probably make a pretty good guess. Uh, Where have we heard that term, the way, before recently in Scripture? Jesus himself called himself the way, the truth, and the life. And sure enough, that term, the way, began to be a, a phrase used to refer to the believers, the church, those who followed the way, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so Saul wants to put to death these followers of Jesus. It didn't matter whether they're women or children. He wants to bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul hasn't changed. Threats and murder in his heart, seeking to bring down this movement, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's then, on his way, as he nears Damascus, that God interrupts Saul's life with light. We're told in verse 3 that this bright light shines around him, sourced in heaven. We learn later that this is a literal appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus in the flesh, the risen Lord there, appearing to Paul. We're not told right here, but as the story unfolds, Ananias mentions that Jesus appeared to him. Barnabas later in chapter 9 mentions that Jesus appeared to him. And the Apostle Paul mentions it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Saul sees the risen Lord, and it changes everything. Now, of course, Saul doesn't know it's him at first. It's just this bright light and a person. And of course, in verse 4, he has to fall to the ground before the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Saul doesn't know who it is. He hears a voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The repetition of Saul's name signifies this intense emotion, the gravity of what Saul is doing against not just the church. Did you notice what Jesus says to him? Why are you persecuting me? It's a really neat picture into the unity of the body of Christ with the head, Christ himself, that to persecute the church is to persecute Jesus. And so Jesus asked Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul, still not sure what's going on here, down on the ground before the Lord Jesus, who are you, Lord? And the word Lord here is a term for majesty and respect. I don't think yet at this point he knows that it's Jesus or that he's giving respect to Jesus. He just knows that he's in the presence of majesty. Who are you, Lord? And the Lord responds to him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Gives him his name, the very name Saul had made himself the sworn enemy that he would hunt down and even seek to put to death the followers of this Jesus. And now there's the risen Lord before him and Saul fallen to the ground before the majesty of Jesus Christ. The following phrase, the Lord Jesus says to him, it is hard for you to kick against the goads, actually comes from uh, Paul's repetition of this time of testimony. In Acts chapter 22 and again in chapter 26, then the apostle Paul gives testimony before many people about how he came to know Christ as Savior. And these details come from those texts and probably weren't originally included by Luke here, but it did happen where The Lord Jesus says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. It means that Saul is resisting the work of the Lord. A goad was a stick that was used to prod animals, right? To get a stubborn mule or cow or whatever it is to, you know, leave leave the pasture. Whatever the farmer wanted the animal to do. And so Saul is resisting the goad, resisting what God is seeking to do in his life. And Jesus acknowledges that it's hard to resist what God is doing. In verse 6, again from these other texts, probably copied here into chapter 9, Saul responds, Lord, what do you want me to do? And here this is in our text, the Lord said to him, arise and go to the city, you will be told what you must do. He tells him to get up and head into Damascus to finish his journey to the city, but things are going to be different. He won't accomplish his original purpose in his visit to Damascus. God has different plans for Saul. And as he gets up, we find out in verse 7 that the men who are with Saul, who are traveling with him, they didn't have the full experience that Saul had. This was intentionally for Saul. God was reaching into Saul's life. And so we're told that they, they heard a sound but didn't know what this voice said. They didn't understand it. They, they saw light, but they didn't see a person. And so these men did not quite have the same experience, but they did know that Saul was now blind. And so in verse 8, as Saul gets up and he can't see, they have to lead him by the hand to bring him into Damascus. Three days, Saul is without sight 
and he did not eat nor drink. The last part, I think, was of his own choice, not eating or drinking. He's staying with a man named Judas, as we find out later, and so I think food and drink would have been available to him. But Saul was so moved by this work of God in his life, we find out later he spends at least some portion of this time praying. I think this is a time where Saul is just being changed by the gravity of God's grace in his life, what God had done to reach into him, realizing that he had it wrong, that this Jesus was indeed exactly who he said he was, that he's Lord of heaven and earth, and had reached into Saul's life to save him. After this experience, Saul is a changed man, and we see that the Lord Jesus does this by stepping into Saul's life, into the darkness. He didn't even know that he was spiritually blind until the Lord Jesus Christ showed up with His glorious light. And then, I think the blindness is meant to signify, almost metaphorically, that Saul's eyes have been opened to his spiritual blindness as the Lord Jesus Christ prepares to change him and heal him. This is true of us as well. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, it is God stepping into our dark lives with His grace. It's a work of God to transform our dead spiritual hearts. He makes us alive in Christ. It's an easy illustration, light versus darkness. You know that light changes things. Maybe you've gotten dressed in the dark before, and then the first place you go where it's light, you realize, oops, picked out some things that don't quite match. One time I even had my buttons misaligned because I had gotten dressed in the dark, right? You just don't see these things. I remember an experience uh, in a restaurant. The first time I went to the restaurant, it was, you know, an evening meal, and so the restaurant lights were turned way down, and it was very dim, and so you, you know, you're trying to read the menu, and so on and so forth, and so we had, we had a good experience at the restaurant. The next time I was at the restaurant, it was a lunch meal, and so the lights were still dim, but the sunlight was pouring into the restaurant, and I began looking around at the floors and tables and walls, and it was kind of like, huh, This restaurant isn't quite as immaculate as it seemed the first time I was here in the darkness. Why? Because light reveals things, doesn't it? It changes our view of what's going on. And here the light of Jesus Christ has changed Saul's view that Jesus is really the risen Lord, that He's alive, and He's the one I should be worshiping and following As we think about application here in point number one, we think about we then should be amazed by grace. It's the the transforming power of God that steps into our dark lives with His glorious light. So then we are to be amazed by grace. We recognize that it is the work of God, His initiation. The Apostle Paul knew this. In fact, I read a text of Scripture that has long time been a favorite of mine in a different light, excuse the pun, in a different light after studying Acts 9. Here's the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Notice the metaphors of light that he uses as he explains the gospel. 
He says this, Our gospel is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age, that Satan, has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You think Acts 9 had an impact on the Apostle Paul and his ministry? What a metaphor for what God does in our hearts when the light of the gospel breaks into our darkness and the glory of God transforms who we are because of His grace and His kindness. It is God's work in us. And yet, in God's sovereign plan, He allows us to resist sometimes. Saul, indeed, was kicking against the goads, so to speak, pushing back God's work. I I wonder if you here today are resisting the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't push back on the grace of God that seeks to reach into your heart and to transform you for His glory even today. Like with Saul, conversion is always an encounter with Jesus. (laughs) Not maybe in person, but We must make a decision about Jesus. What will I do with Jesus? And I would ask you that question today. What will you do with Jesus? He's the man from heaven, God in the flesh, who in his life changed history forever. Do you realize the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as we look back, is probably the most provable event in ancient history more witnesses and writings about this event than just about anything else that we claim as true in history. What will you do with Jesus? That His words that He taught and said came true just as He said. That He is exactly who He said He was and that He's the risen Lord now reigning from heaven at the Father's right hand. What will you do with Jesus? Will you take Him at His word? Will you believe that He came to die for you and rise from the grave so that you could be forgiven for your sins? Will you accept the glorious gospel that Jesus died for you and rose again? To be transformed, we must see that we're blind, like Saul here, who now is recognizing that he saw it all wrong. In the Apostle Paul's life, Saul's life, This transformation just becomes a a theme. I mentioned already that it comes up in almost every single one of the Apostle Paul's letters. It could be every one. I didn't have a lot of time to search for it. I couldn't find it in 2 Thessalonians or Philemon. But the rest of them, the Apostle Paul references his conversion and the grace of God in his life. Specifically in one text, 1 Timothy chapter 1 Verses 12 through 17, 
he, he makes reference to how significant this is, not only for himself, but for all who will trust in Christ. He says this in, in verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. In so many words, the Apostle Paul is saying, if God can save me, He can save anyone. And he's highlighting the mercy and grace of God. In verse 17, he gives praise to the King Eternal, who in wisdom and power reached into Saul's life with mercy and grace. Friends, Saul's conversion is a reminder to us of, of the immense power of God in the Gospel. If he can save Saul, he can save anyone. Be amazed by the grace of God in your life. You know, sometimes we look at a dramatic conversion like this and we think, well, mine's not so dramatic, right? I I, I was saved at six years old. And certainly from one perspective could look back at that and say, well, as a six-year-old, I hadn't murdered anybody. It wasn't a persecutor of the church, <laughs> right? It was speaking threats against the followers of the Lord. And so on the one hand, uh, you know, we look at that and say, well, is that really a, you know, a big conversion? Friend, every conversion is as dramatic as what we see in the life of Saul here. And you know it because as you grow as a believer, God begins to open your eyes to the sin in your own heart. And whatever, whatever Saul has listed here as his activity, blasphemer, persecutor, murderer, can you not see those things in your heart? Remember what Jesus said. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit murder. I say to you, if you're angry, if you hate your brother from your heart, you've committed murder in your heart, right? Are we not sinners through and through? Can we not look at the grace of God and say, oh Lord, I, there was not a piece of me that deserved this, but I deserved your judgment. Oh, be amazed by the grace of God in your life, that you too, that I, the chief of sinners, could be saved by the grace of God. Salvation is always dramatic because God saves a sinner who is unworthy of it, no matter what age they're at, Their heart has sin in it through and through. And God's grace is incredible. Grow in your awe and amazement of God's kindness. Be amazed of His grace to shine the light of the gospel in your heart. In the next section, we are introduced to Ananias and uh, we see Saul as well. But what we're going to notice as we work through this section is that the Lord Jesus also gives us a new purpose. This isn't just saving us from our sin. But you're going to notice in this text that God has a purpose for Ananias and God has a purpose for Saul. In fact, Jesus uses the very words, I have chosen him 
to be a vessel for me. See, salvation, we sometimes call it the call of God. Because it's not just to forgive us our sins, but God gives us new purpose in life. It's a call to serve Him. So let's see how this unfolds. First, we're introduced to Ananias in verse 10. This is not the same Ananias from Acts chapter 5 who lied to the Holy Spirit and was taken home to be with the Lord. Uh, This is a different Ananias who lives in Damascus. He's a follower of Jesus Christ. We're not told the story of how he came to be a follower of Jesus Christ, just that he is. And we notice his uh, heart of service to the Lord. The Lord comes to him in a vision, and immediately Ananias says, Here I am, Lord. What, What do you want? What do you have ready to serve? Verse 11, the Lord gives him instructions to go to the street called Straight, Straight Street. We can assume it probably was Straight, unless it was an ironic name and it was a curvy road. I don't know. But anyway, it's still present there in Damascus today, and at least today, it is a straight street running from east to west across the city. And a man named Judas lived on this street, and that's where Saul of Tarsus was staying. All of these instructions coming to Ananias in verse 11. We're also told that Saul is praying. Again, I think this is part of God working in his heart. Saul is now understands who God is, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and is communing with him, praying and fasting in those three days as he waits. By God's kindness, God has let Saul know that healing is coming. A man named Ananias will show up and put his hand on him, and he'll be healed of his blindness and We learn that through God's instructions to Ananias there in verse 12. We can understand Ananias' response in verse 13, can't we? Uh, Ananias, I want you to go heal Saul of Tarsus. That name rings a bell. (laughs) Ananias comes back to the Lord. And again, I don't think he's resistant, but he wants to be sure. Maybe there's multiple Saul's from Tarsus. I don't know. Is this the same guy? And so he says in verse uh, 13 and 14, Lord, I've heard many things about this Saul of Tarsus, that not only in Jerusalem is he persecuting the believers, but even word has come to Damascus that Saul is on his way with authority from the high priest to arrest and drag people to prison, to bind those who call upon the Lord's name. So Ananias is unsure, as you better believe I would have been as well. Uh, Saul? (laughs) Are you sure, Lord? The, The one that's done all of this? And I love the Lord Jesus' response in verse 15. Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear, before, bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. God had called Saul not only to salvation, but to a purpose. God had a mission for Saul to accomplish. God had a mission for Ananias to accomplish. And it was all part of serving the Lord. You see, the Lord Jesus is Lord of His church. And salvation not only saves us from our sins and makes us right with God, but calls us to the Lord's work, to serve our Master, to live for Him. So Ananias does exactly as the Lord has commanded, and we learn about that in 17 through 19, and we'll study that portion of the text in our final point. The Lord Jesus has given both Ananias and Saul a new purpose here. There's something 
helpful, about new purpose, a fresh start. Some of you are back in town for classes at Faith Baptist Bible College, right? Starting up a new semester. I can remember the excitement of a clean slate, right? Before your first class starts, you have an A plus in every class. I mean, it's just exciting. I remember in seminary, one such start of a semester, it had, I had just finished a uh, especially tumultuous semester, and so I started the semester with a renewed sense of purpose. I'm going to be a good student this semester, right? I'm going to get on top of things, and the problem last semester was specifically that I had procrastinated my reading quite a bit. Uh, and in seminary, you're often assigned thousands of pages worth of reading, and, uh, and I had saved that all to the final week of the semester. So uh, it was a long week. So I started the new semester, and I thought to myself, you know what, I'm going to do this in an organized fashion. And so uh, I pulled out my uh, Excel spreadsheet, right? And uh, after I'd received all my syllabi, I took the reading, and I broke it all up. I counted the days in the semester, and broke it all up by the number of days, and I figured it out. I had to read, it was like 300 pages a day or something like that, through the semester, you know, to get it done in time. Something like, something along those lines. I don't remember exactly. So I I figured it all out, and we were going to make this happen. I was going to, you know, pass this semester. And he guesses how long that plan lasted. It's like New Year's resolutions, right? I I made it to like day two or day three, and then it was out the window. You know, to this day, I have no idea where that spreadsheet went. It's long gone and lost. But I was very organized. I had new purpose at the beginning of the semester. I did eventually get all the reading done, but uh, not as scheduled. New purpose, a new sense of excitement around mission, around what God has called us to. And this is part of what God does when he calls us in salvation. Not just saving us from our sins, but calling us into his very mission itself. That we would participate in what God is doing in the world. This, by way of application, reminds us that we should be eager to share. We participate in this purpose of God, in this mission of God, by being eager to share. And certainly, if we think about point number one and being amazed by God's grace, that leads to being eager to share. I think it was Paul's amazement at God's grace that led him to coming back to that so frequently in his letters, eager to share what God had done. Sadly, some add Jesus to their lives for their own purposes. They adopt religion with the primary goal of feeling better or making connections or growing as a person or doing some good. And and as soon as life gets rocky, they're left asking, well, how has following Jesus really done me any good? Has being a Christian really benefited me at all? And when we ask these questions, we, we don't truly understand salvation. Salvation is God's call out of our dead life into His new life. His death isn't intended to just make my earthly life a little better. No, He died to completely transform me. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have been made new. Beware the tempting heresy of the prosperity gospel. That if you come to Jesus, you'll experience physical blessing. Saul here is even told by the Lord Jesus that 
He will suffer things for the name of Jesus Christ. We're called to his mission. Don't get me wrong, it's good. (laughs) There's nothing better than saving faith in Jesus Christ and God's eternal good in our lives. But it doesn't always mean physical blessing in this life, does it? No, the Lord Jesus calls us to salvation for His purposes, to serve Him, to bear His name, and that may even involve suffering. Friend, when you come to Jesus, in many ways, your life may even get harder. But it's worth it. Because you're forgiven of your sins. You're at peace with God. You have God's Spirit who is using the hardship to do eternal good in your soul. He's growing you and giving you peace and joy and involving you in His mission. Suddenly, our hardships have purpose. And your salvation guarantees that you will be one day saved from all hardship in eternal life. Our purpose, then, is evangelism and discipleship. Of course, your existence is for the glory of God, and your eternal purpose is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But your mission during your time on earth is to declare salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. You accept this mission when you trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. He calls you to a new life, and that mission is the very reason you have breath. It's why you have a family. It's why you have a house. It's why you have a job. It's why you have relationships. It's why you have money. Everything comes back to God's purpose for you in this life, to proclaim salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus gives us new purpose, and so friends, you and I need to be eager to share. In this final section, as we see all of this unfold, kind of the conclusion of the matter, we note that the Lord Jesus unites us to His body by His Spirit. And we'll move quickly through this section, but I want you to notice the incredible change that has taken place. I mean, just imagine Ananias there in verse 17. Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. Let's pause on that for a moment, right? If I were in that scenario, the laying my hands on Saul might have been a little bit different. (laughs) But Ananias takes the word of the Lord here as true, that, that God has called Saul to salvation, and so Ananias comes in and puts his hand on him just as instructed by the Lord to heal him of his blindness and calls him Brother Saul to take an enemy under threats of arrest and murder. And Ananias walks in, Brother Saul. Praise God for the family he has made in the church. That we who are enemies of Christ can call one another brother and sister. So here, Brother Saul. Can you imagine how that sounded in Saul's ears as Ananias walks in and, Brother Saul, I've come at the instruction of the Lord Jesus. Ananias uh, explains what happened to him, uh, that he's come to heal him, help him to receive his sight and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And as Ananias speaks those words, those things happen in verse 18. Something falls off of Saul's eyes and he's able to see clearly and receives his sight. And he gets up and he's baptized. He's been welcomed into the local church at Damascus. Brother Saul, 
And just as the Spirit came into his heart and baptized him into the body of Christ with spirit baptism, so then he goes to be baptized in the waters and united then to the local church at Damascus. And we find out in verse 19, when he received food, he was strengthened. He spent days with the disciples there in Damascus, his new family. (laughs) As he grows and is strengthened and is encouraged by his brothers and sisters in Christ. What a beautiful transformation. The unity of the body of Christ is evidence of God's grace. It's evidence of God's love and forgiveness. And it's as we see ourselves as the chief of sinners, so to speak, we extend the same grace that God has given us to others. The same forgiveness that God has offered us to others. The same love that God has offered us, we extend to our brothers and sisters in Christ no matter what they have done to us in the past. I was reminded recently of one incredible story of this, written by Corey Ten Boom. You may have heard of her name before. She worked against the Nazis during World War II, hiding Jews in her home. When she was caught, she was sent to a concentration camp where she was stripped of her dignity, saw her father and her sister Betsy die, and suffered more at the hands of others than we could possibly imagine. And so she shares this account of her forgiveness in one of her books. And this is from an article by Matthew Crocker from October of 2021. It was at the church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fräulein, he said, to think that, as you say, he has washed away my sins. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who preached so often to the people at Blomenthal the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side." Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges but on His. When the Lord Jesus tells us to love our enemies, He gives, along with the command, the love itself. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that empowers the church. He unites us to His body by His Spirit. And as He does that, we then can be active in the church, putting on display His glorious love and grace and mercy as we then interact with each other the same way He has shown those things to us. And by the strength of His Spirit, 
we see the very glory of Christ in and among God's people. And it shines with His love and mercy and kindness. The call of God to salvation means intimate connection to the church, brothers and sisters in Christ, all forgiven their wrongs by the work of Christ on the cross. And then we are united to Christ so that it could even be said as we sin against and persecute one another, we persecute the Lord Christ, Lord of His church. We receive God's Spirit as Saul did here for strength to live the Christian life, to help us as we seek to encourage and strengthen one another. And this becomes what compels the growth of the church, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ seen in and among us. God's transforming power through the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ is unmatched in the universe. And it can be at work in your life today. Let me just close by rehearsing the way Saul was changed in this text. And maybe you can reminisce the way the Lord has changed you. Here, in Acts chapter 9, the enemy becomes a servant. The adversary becomes a worshiper. The persecutor becomes the persecuted. The one with authority from chief priests receives authority from the Lord Jesus The one who was blind now can see. The destroyer of families is welcomed into God's family. The bully becomes a brother. Filled with murder, he is now filled with the Holy Spirit. Formerly against the disciples, he is now one of the followers of Jesus Christ. God's grace transforms us. Father, we thank you so much for the work of Jesus Christ here in Acts chapter 9. It's our desire to respond in in worship and in love and to be amazed by your grace in such a way that we would then be eager to share that grace with others and to be active in your body, the church. And so help us open our eyes even further to understand how you saved me, the chief of sinners. We thank you and we praise you for this grace in Jesus' name. Amen.